Welcome to Sense and Sensibility, the Inflation Guy podcast. I am Michael Ashton. I am the Inflation Guy, and I am your host today and every day. And uh, we're calling this episode Potpourri. Uh, Potpourri is the term they used to use on um, uh, Jeopardy to be a category that included lots of different stuff and um, little little bits and pieces that that could be sort of anything. And that's kind of today's uh, podcast. You know, I've written commentaries. I've written market commentary for a long time, many, many years, going back to the 90s. And, and there's always been a really interesting phenomenon that the more I wrote, the easier it was. When I was writing a daily comment, um, it's a lot of work to write a daily article, but at some at some level, it's it's somewhat easier because you're telling a story, and every day you're kind of advancing the story. You're telling what changed, you're you're telling what 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 people should look for, and and occasionally you can do a little a little side you know, something a little bit on the side, um, you know, a little side story. But but you're telling the same narrative. As I got older and I got busier and and I would do commentaries less frequently, and you can see this on my blog. When I first launched my blog back in 2009 or whatever it was, um, inflationguy.blog, um, I, print, I, I put something out every day. And it was general market stuff, and, and, and now I'm more, you know, purely inflation-focused, obviously, um, and, and so there isn't necessarily something to talk about every day, but, but that actually got harder. Um, I would put out an article every few days or every week or every two weeks. And, and the longer I went, the harder it got to write another article. Um, and the same, as it happens, is turning out to be true with, with this podcast that, you know, every month I do the CPI summary. Um, and that's sort of easy. I know what I'm going to say. I've already written. Um, and then I want to do at least one or, or two other podcasts that month. But it's a little bit difficult. You know, there are, um, uh, because I'm not doing it every day, as some podcasters do, um, because I don't have a, it's not like a true crime podcast where I'm advancing a particular narrative every day or every week, uh, it, it's harder. And uh, and so, you know, when you sit down, and, like I did this week, and, and I said, look, I really need to, I need to put out a podcast, I need to put one in the can and put it out there. What am I going to talk about? And the the problem is that there are lots of little things to talk about, but it's hard to come up regularly with a whole episode. Anyway, that's how we got to potpourri. Um, there's a couple of different things that I want to talk about uh, today, and we're going to start with monetary velocity. And obviously, this is something that I have spoken a lot about before, and I've made some predictions about. And we just got the third quarter GDP numbers, and so I want to sort of give uh, an update uh, when they. When they report GDP, that's when we finally have enough information to know what money velocity has done because, because we calculate money velocity as sort of the leftover figure in the monetarist equation of MV equals PQ. And we, sort of, we know we can look at what money supply did for the quarter and we, we know what, you know, when we get P and Q, the, the GDP price index and, and Q is the the GDP 
uh, growth figure itself, then that gives us three out of four and we calculate velocity. We don't directly observe monetary velocity. And so today we got the GDP figure, which means we can calculate uh, M2 velocity for the third quarter. And it was up 1.84% quarter on quarter, or roughly a seven, seven and a quarter percent annualized rate. Um, that's, that's quite a large uh, movement higher in velocity. It doesn't look necessarily like it because we had such a massive decline in the crisis, in the COVID crisis, but, but it's, it's a big jump. Actually, the, f the 5% year-on-year -year compared to the third quarter of 2019 uh, monetary velocity, is th that 5% rise is the, high, most, the biggest increase since 1995. Monetary velocity has been declining steadily for a very long time along with interest rates. Um, and, um, and so we've known for a while that, that velocity had to be going back up. And I've said that on this podcast. Just by definition, it, it, it has to go up um, unless there's something weird that's permanently impaired it. You know, we've had to M2 deflated by GDP, so M over Q, has risen about 30%, depending on when you measure it from, so far in, in the, the, the few years since COVID started, um, and prices are up about 15%. So that difference, 15%, represents the decline in velocity that happened all of a sudden when, when suddenly the Fed started flushing a bunch of money in. That difference has to be made up one way or another. Unless velocity is permanently impaired, and money is just going to turn over more slowly forever, then eventually, and by the way, this, is, this has been true for more than 100 years in, in hundreds of countries, eventually M2 divided by GDP uh, tells you where the price level is. And so when you have a big difference like we have now opening up, eventually that, that has to close. Um, now, what drives down money velocity over over time is, um, and in, in a short period of time, is uh, interest rates and, and in general sort of the opportunity cost of holding cash when interest rates, longer term interest rates go up, when the stock market goes down, and so there's an opportunity cost to holding cash, um, then then people tend to hold smaller cash balances, which means more money velocity. Um, and... And, uh, or, or I guess sort of the flip side, when interest rates go down, we tend to have a lower money velocity. Um, but also people tend to hold more cash when they're nervous and when things have, um, uh, when they have a great deal of uncertainty. And so that's a precautionary demand for real cash balances. And so that also tends to decrease velocity, but it, it tends to not be permanent. And there's a third thing which I've never really thought about, never really included until this crisis, and that is that <laughs> you can you can be holding cash because so much of it was was squirted into your bank account that you just don't have you know you're not ready to spend it yet, and that's what happened over over the uh, uh, over the COVID crisis, um, and and so it's a little bit like. And this is sort of unique. We've really never seen this happen in velocity, but it's kind of like monetary velocity in this, in this cycle has acted like a pressure vessel that when money supply spiked and GDP didn't and, and prices started to go up, but, but prices didn't spike overnight, mathematically, 
that has to go into a velocity. And so velocity acts like a pressure vessel. It suddenly declined. And part of it was this precautionary demand for money. But part of it, too, was in a, um, an unintentional holding of cash balances. And, and, as, and like a pressure vessel, so it, it takes that pressure initially, but gradually now releases it over time. And that's what we're seeing. Now money velocity is starting to go back up. And what that means is for a given level of money supply growth, right now money supply over the last six months has been flat, even down a little bit, M2 money supply, um, which is weird and, 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 and I'm, I'm, not, I'm not totally sure I'm, I think that's going, to be persi- that's going to persist in the long run, but it has so far. But you'd say 0% money growth, we should be having you know, deflation, except you have this pressure vessel, money velocity, that has to though go and recover. It has to restore this extra 15% to the price level before we're done. And so it's going gonna, it's gonna to add increments to what the other, otherwise, what otherwise would be the equilibrium uh, going forward. And so that's, um, that's I think, that, that's what's happening now. And we're starting to see money velocity uh, rise back up. So that's velocity. And uh, that's what I wanted to say about that. Housing. <laughs> I, I tweeted, uh, I'm, I'm getting ready to just get totally can free Twitter and, and maybe just, just have a, uh, just talk to my, the people who pay for a subscription because, you know, the amount of just garbage that happens on Twitter when, you know, you, you, you tweet something that's valuable and you're giving it away for free and, and you just get all the trolls and it's, it's very disheartening and takes a tremendous amount of time to respond to the trolls and cancel them, block them, whatever. Um, so I tweeted the fact, a very simple chart from Bloomberg showing that the money, money supply, M2 money supply is up about, you know, 40% um, uh, over this, this crisis. And so are home prices measured by the Case-Shiller um, uh, 10 city home price index. And it's very obvious that when the money supply is starting to accelerate with a short lag, so did home prices. It's crystal clear on the chart. And my observation was that everyone says there's a bubble in, in housing and we're going to have a housing crash. I don't see it. Uh, you, you can argue that home prices might be a little bit higher, higher than they should be for you know, to wages and whatever, but wages are coming back up. So you could solve it that way, but they really don't look terribly extended in, in real space, particularly when you look at what's happened to the quantity of money. Look, folks, if you get, if you have twice as much money out there as you did before, and I'm just using that because it's a round number. You have, if you double the amount of money out there, but you don't double the amount of real stuff, then, then the amount of, of money that you have to give for that same real stuff should double. The, the price of that real stuff should double. And so it, it's, you'd expect to see, all else being equal, the, the, the value of real stuff going up with the tide of money. That's not at all unexpected. And in fact, that's exactly what we've seen in residential housing. Well, people totally lost their minds. And it was, it, first of all, it's terrible. It's really fascinating how many people desperately want house, the housing market to collapse. I don't understand why they want it to collapse. I kind of think there's something of a political thing going on. And, you know, if you, if you, if you don't like Joe Biden, um, and I'm not a fan, but if you, if you, you know, maybe you get, your vision gets obscured and you just want everything bad to happen 
um, because so many bad things are happening and so many of them are his fault, but you just want everything bad to happen. I, I, that's the only thing I can think of. I can't imagine why you'd want the housing market to collapse. It, you, it seems like that should be a place where, you know, either there's a bias to wanting to it to go up since, you know, net net we're owners of houses um, or, or you can be more objective, but certainly I wouldn't think that people would want, I can't think of who has the interest to want housing prices to collapse. But, but, pe- but, but at least you should be able to objectively look at the data. And I simply had a chart very clearly showing this relationship. Um, and, you know, one of the reactions was, well, you know, I started the chart in 2011. They said, well, why did you start that chart in, in 2004? Because you could, you could see that, you know, in the last, uh, you know, in 2007, 8, 9, 10, you know, that, that uh, uh, home prices didn't, you know, track with money. Which of course is, is is like kind of my point. In 2007, there clearly was a bubble, and one of the ways that you knew there was a housing bubble was that housing prices went up far more than the money supply. The, the their value in terms of the you know they were the the value of the housing stock in terms of the proportion of money that it, that it took, if you want to think about it that way, was much higher. And so, I mean, it was a, it was an evident bubble at the time. Um, to everybody except Ben Bernanke, and and but but it absolutely showed up in the fact that home prices diverged from the amount of money being created. That's not at all what what's happening here. And so my my exact point was this is not the same as the housing crisis. We are not going to have a collapse in home prices the way we did the last time around. Things are very very different. Now, home prices may decline in real terms, right? We've got we've got the price level going up five, six, seven, eight percent a year. So it wouldn't be terribly shocking if home prices only went up two percent a year and so they declined in real space. But it's it's hard when the price level is jumping that much to have the the price of, of a real asset go down in nominal terms. And that was sort of my point that look, if you look to the 1970s, housing you know, residential housing never went up less than 3% a year, even though mortgage rates skyrocketed. And so, and so rising mortgage rates should Im- impact activity in the housing market. It should affect Q, the quantity of the transactions, but there's no reason it should affect the price of those transactions. Um, uh, except, you know, I... I you know, I try to be objective. And so, you know, I can think of ways that we can get the nominal price of, of houses, of the housing indices, anyway, to go down. Um, so because, you know, if you're a homeowner, and in the United States, most of our mortgages are fixed rate mortgages. This is not true if you're in Europe, if you're in Canada, if you're in Australia, most of those mortgages are floating rate mortgages. In the United States, most of our mortgages are fixed rate mortgages, which means that if you're sitting in a home home right now, um, it's gone up in value, but also you're sitting on a 3% mortgage. Um, Now mortgages are 7%. So if you sell your home and you move into another home, you've got to swap out your 3% mortgage for a 7%. You can't carry it with you, Um, which means you're taking a big loss to go and do that. Well, that's going to totally impair volumes. Mortgage origination is going to be way down. 
the number of people selling their homes voluntarily to move into another home is going to be way, way down because they have to take a financial hit in order to do it. Um, and so, and so it's not at all surprising when you, that you see higher mortgage rates associated with lower activity, but, but you also are going to introduce a bias. And this is, this is the part that I had to think hard about. You're going to introduce a bias in the price indices, the, the resale indices, because think of, of who it is that is going to be selling now. The people who are going to be selling houses now fall into one of two categories. Either they're forced sellers, um, well, three categories. One is that they're selling a home and they're going to go rent. Um, fairly small category of people. Uh, the second category is forced sellers, someone who has died and the estate has to sell the home, uh, divorce and they have to sell the home. Um, they're moving, you know, their job is taking them somewhere else. They have to sell the home and move. Okay. Those are people who, um, you know, have to, one, for one reason or another, eat the, the loss on the mortgage that they're, that they're giving up this low, low rate mortgage to get a high rate mortgage. And, and so those are forced sellers. And, and so we would expect all those being equal, if somebody is kind of being forced to go and sell their home, it's going to be at a lower price. That person is a, you know, that we just made it a buyer's market if the only people who are selling are, are for sellers. And, uh, and second, and the other group is, is investors whose debt isn't tied directly to the property. As a homeowner, if you sell the home, you have to, you know, cover the mortgage. But if you're Zillow Homes or, you know, any of these, these places that accumulate homes, um, your debt is you take out debt separately. It's not tied to the specific collateral. And so when you sell the home, you don't have to cover the mortgage. Those people are, they're going to sell just as many homes. There's no reason that, that, that their turnover should change. Um, and, and those are exactly the companies that as their general debt burden goes up, um, and as home activity goes down, they may have to shrink their portfolios. And again, they're, they're not exactly forced sellers, but they're, more eager sellers. Um, and, and so, and so it may be that property indices are going to become more biased because they're, they're going to be more, more of those indices are going to be measured by stressed prices. Um, again, for sellers, um, you know, the, the eager buyers, um, are only the first time home buyers. <laughs> You're not going to have people who are you know, selling their 3% mortgage, their home funded by a 3% mortgage and go eagerly take out a 7.5% mortgage to get another home um, and, and pay lots more for it because they're also paying a lot more for the mortgage. So you've, so, so the, the home price indices could decline in nominal terms uh, a little bit. I, I don't, I really don't think that's a very big, it's not gonna be a huge effect. And with prices in the in the general economy going up five to eight percent a year, you know it's holding a price unchanged for a year is 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 decreasing at five to eight percent in real terms. So, so I don't I don't know that that's going to be a big effect. But the other thing is, it's not it it isn't real in the sense that it's not measuring the average the average price of of an owned home that doesn't turn over. Which of course we don't really have a good way to measure that period, 
but just something to keep in mind is that is that okay so i'll concede there may be some artificial downward pressure on these indices in nominal space i don't think it's going to be very much as long as we have inflation going up as high as it is um the um and by by the way while we're talking about housing there's something else that um again some people just really want to talk about the collapsing housing market and one of the th reasons that i wouldn't expect home prices generally to 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 do anything like they did in 2008 9 10 is that the inventory of new homes and existing homes is just much much lower than it was back then there was back in 2007 there was a tremendous amount of overbuilding and you can just look at the the number of new homes on the market um, available for sale were just was just off the charts and it's not it's it's totally the opposite we have you know near record lows in the amount of new homes out there um but you may not see that depending on on where you get your data because and this is i don't I don't really understand what the historical reason for this is, but if you're looking at inventories of homes, they like to show this in terms of months of new homes. So rather than tell you there's 1 million units for sale, they'll take that number of units and divide by the, 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 the pace of selling of homes. Um, and it's, I guess the idea is that's how many months it would take to clear that, vin that, inv that inventory. So if you, you know, if you're a manufacturer and you've got, you know, 10,000 widgets and you're selling 3,000, you know, 4,000 widgets a month, then it's two and a half months to clear the inventory. That's how many months of inventory you have. Okay. That kind of makes some sense, except that the denominator here is, is crazy volatile. And, and the numerator isn't. And furthermore, it's the numerator that affects the price. So the numerator is the number of new homes, or the number of homes out there. And the denominator is the months of sales. And so when we have the circumstance right now that the months of sales has fallen off a cliff, well, the inventory of homes hasn't changed, but suddenly it looks like there's, there's, a there's enormous amounts of inventory. You know, if you, if you have the, the, the pace of sales and you double the months of inventory, but that's kind of nonsense. It doesn't have any, it doesn't have any relationship to, to, to prices. You care about the number of homes compared to say the number of people in the country. I mean, how many roofs compared to how many heads, um, how often homes are selling that shouldn't really tell you anything. I and mean, again, maybe if you're a mortgage broker, that's that's a useful thing to look at. And maybe that's where the history comes from. But in terms of figuring out whether or not there's a shortage of homes for sale, and so that should affect prices, you shouldn't really care about the months of sales. You should you should care about the total number of units. And in terms of total number of units, there's a, a great paucity of homes for sale. And by the way, we've just added a couple million new heads into the country over the last couple of years. Um, and maybe they don't make as much money as other people, but they're still heads. You got to put a roof over. So that, that is, it does affect demand. Um, okay. So last point here in the potpourri is the fed. So the feds meeting in a couple of days here and, um, uh, 
we've just seen Canada tighten 50 basis points when people were expecting 75. Australia surprised by tightening 25 basis points less than was expected. Um, and and I think it's it's widely expected the Federal Reserve is going to, to tighten 75 basis points. And, and I think that's pretty much baked into the cake. In fact, I think I said that after the, the CPI report was it was a bad CPI report um, and that people have been thinking maybe the Fed does 50. No, that bakes, bakes 75 into the cake. That's what we're going to get. But I do think that after that, we're going to decelerate to 50 and 25, not because the inflation pressures are lessening, because in, in, in a very real sense, they're kind of not in some important ways. But the, the, um, there is something to be said for the notion that, you know, you, you have to, you have, once you've gone out with your flamethrower and you've, you know, just been burning for, for, you know, 20 minutes, sometimes you have to turn off the flamethrower and see how bad are the damages that you've done. And, and the Fed, when they get interest rates up to close to 5%, it's a little prudent to sort of stop and say, eh, okay, money supply growth is at zero, balance sheet's starting to, you know, decline a little bit. We've raised rates to, you know, 500 bips. So, you know, maybe, maybe we should stop and just see what happens from here. And I think that's prudent. Um, you know, some people want the Fed to just keep raising rates until it gets above inflation. Okay. Um, that's, that's, you know, that's the Taylor rule. That's what kind of the way we used to do things. And if inflation was moving slowly, that might make some sense. But everything's moving very, very quickly right now. And I think that it's, it would be, it would make sense for the central bank to just, just sort of pause and look around and, and see what happens. Now, I don't think that that means that they're going to turn around and then once we get a recession, as we're going to get, um, that they're going to suddenly start easing again. I, I really don't think that's going to happen. I think that that um, at the end of the day, the Fed is going to get a lot of criticism and should get a lot of criticism for a lot of the things they screwed up. But if if the net result of this tightening cycle is that interest rates go back to being something around equilibrium, something like, you know, 5% as a medium term note rate, um, where that represents, you know, two, two and a half percent inflation and two and two to two and a half percent expected growth. So you get something around a 5% nominal rate, four and a half, five percent in the long run. Um, and then they stop. I I I think that's actually that that part they'll they'll deserve some um, uh, some kudos for. Uh, there's a lot of political pressures though, and so I don't you know we'll have to wait and see whether that really happens or whether the five percent just becomes you know a ceiling that they never want to go above. But I do think they don't really want to go back to zero again. So we will see. I think bottom line is I think the Fed goes seventy five. 50, 25, and maybe they do another 25, or maybe they do two 50s instead of a 50 and a 25, but then they stop and take a look around um, in the early part of next year. Um, so that's my guess. I think that was my guess after CPI, and that remains my guess, and I just wanted to put it out there. And that is all of our potpourri for today. And hey, I just want to throw one thing in here really quick before I wrap up and you hear the music, and that is that... Uh, if you like this podcast, please uh, spread it around. Um, you know, we uh, 
we had a lot of growth early on, and we've kind of leveled out a little bit. And I, I want to talk to, to more and more people and have more and more people listening. So if you like the podcast and you like what, what we're doing here, please tell your friends. I think the next time I talk to you will probably be after the CPI report, but um, we're coming up on Thanksgiving in this next month, and so maybe I'll squeeze another another podcast in there somewhere. If you've got a topic that you would like to see addressed on the podcast, um, please send me an email. You can contact me, inflationguy at enduringinvestments.com, or you can follow the blog, inflationguy.blog. Uh, I'm still on Twitter right now, at inflation underscore guy. don't know how long that's going to be. Um, visit the Enduring Investments website if you have any interest in investing in this area and want to know how that you should be uh, proceeding to defend your money. Because if inflation is coming for you, remember, you know a guy. Remember.